You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. This podcast is brought to you in association with BHA Medical. BHA Medical source, supply, implement and innovate medical technology solutions across the globe. BHA provide market leading services in COVID-19 testing kits, medical products, smart technology and consultancy. One of the latest solutions that BHA Medical offer is the iMed end-to-end COVID-19 testing and monitoring solution. NPH iMed is an end-to-end COVID-19 testing monitoring solution that is developed in partnership with BHA Medical to assist in collating and managing test results, reopening travel, leisure, events and entertainment. NPH Group have simplified the process of reporting test result data for you through our online platform, which makes capturing the required data for submission easy, whilst easily also recalling individuals for repeat testing and submission. NPH have created a fully compliant and automatic upload capability, so you don't have to worry about it with a cost-effective solution. Please head over to the show notes for further details. So welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Ron Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jason Smith on combat casualty care and hemorrhage control within the military environment. So what I wanted to examine is the bleeding patients in the tactical and combat environments. So also dig into some of the fundamental education that's changed practice within the recent years. What I'd also like to do with Jason is dig into the SWIFT study, which is ongoing, which is a study of whole blood in frontline trauma. So it's a multi-centered randomized controlled trial of the clinical and cost effectiveness of pre-hospital whole blood administration versus standard care for traumatic hemorrhage. So I've got Jason Smith with me, who's a surgeon captain uh, within the military. His current role is Defence Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Academic Department of Military Emergency Medicine, the Royal Centre of Defence Medicine in Birmingham. He was also appointed the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Professor in 2013 and is an honorary professor at Plymouth University Peninsula Schools of Medicine and Dentistry. So he was a consultant advisor in emergency medicine to the uh, medical director general of the Navy from 2010 to 14. And he's currently a fellow of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and the Royal College of Physicians of London. And if that wasn't enough, he's also uh, a member of the Royal Geographical Society. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Jason, I just thought we could start potentially with getting a perspective as to how frontline education has changed over recent years to clinicians and indeed frontline soldiers to help with the mortality of the bleeding patients. So one thing I think that um, we have benefited from is aligning the frontline education uh, across both medical personnel and non-medical personnel. So the troops on the ground, the soldiers and sailors who are going out and putting themselves in harm's way are actually getting taught the same principles of uh, first aid management and hemorrhage control as the medics behind them. So um, I think we've benefited from aligning that. And what we learned 20 years ago when we went into Iraq and then Afghanistan um, was that people were dying of blood loss on the battlefield. Uh, So prioritizing catastrophic hemorrhage control uh, up front as the primary driver of uh, the CABC algorithms um, w- was essentially born from that, the, the clinical experience of people dying on the battlefield while people were concentrating on ABC uh, and not concentrating on the fact that people were bleeding out. Um, and as much as uh, medics get taught that in 
uh, resuscitation courses and life support courses. Actually, the frontline uh, soldiers and sailors get taught that as part of their annual training, um, and it's embedded within standard mandatory military training uh, as well as medical training. So I think um, right from uh, the, the, uh, the ground level up to the more experienced consultants in emergency medicine and pre-hospital care, um, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, nothing comes as a surprise and the priorities in management are the same. Uh, whether you're uh, uh, injured yourself um, and administering self-aid, whether your buddy's injured and you're administering buddy aid, or actually whether you're part of an advanced pre-hospital team arriving in the back of a helicopter. So Jason, we've seen in recent years, as you said, you know, the, the real uh, adage of putting external hemorrhage control right at the front of the sequential algorithms. So the big C, ABC. So we've seen the adage of a lot of more pharmacological agents to, to stop internal hemorrhage over the last few years, namely TXA. Um, and indeed, phys physical adjuncts such as uh, tourniquets. Could you speak to um, to the the adage of TXA? Are you are you starting to see it proliferate within frontline military medicine? Is it starting to be given uh, within your anecdotal experience a lot sooner on the battlefield uh, to the wounded soldier? So I think tranexamic acid is a, an important component of hemostatic resuscitation on the battlefield. Um, we've learned over the last 10 years, there's good randomized controlled trial evidence uh, from CRASH-2 and also MATTERS, which was a, a study specifically looking at the military population. But there is a definite survival benefit when you give tranexamic acid in bleeding trauma patients. Um, I, I think, yes, absolutely, it's, it's become embedded in part of our clinical protocols. Uh, it, it would be a surprise now to see a bleeding trauma patient who hasn't received tranexamic acid in the military uh, forward environment before they reach a medical treatment facility. If they do reach a medical treatment facility without having had it within that first three hour window, then obviously we would give it as part of our initial resuscitation pro protocols. Um, it, in fact, the military have been uh, part of a, an initiative to try to um, uh, enhance the ability to give tranexamic acid earlier on in the patient pathway. So the development of an intramuscular uh, tranexamic acid auto-injector is ongoing at the moment, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harvey Pinn from the military has been involved in the development of that, our Defence Consultant Advisor in pre-hospital medicine. Um, he, he has been integral to the development of that IM auto-injector um, that hopefully will enable uh, tranexamic acid to be given further forward in that operational patient care pathway um, to hopefully maximise the benefit that you can get from the administration of TXA in these bleeding trauma patients. So looking at the adage of, of a few more pharmacological agents, because you know, right at the start of the algorithm, we've got the uh, application of a, a tourniquet for external hemorrhage. There, in my anecdotal experience, it's, it's there's a lot of internal hemorrhage that goes along with blast and ballistic injuries, and indeed a lot of traumatic injuries. So, you know, looking at TXA, as you said, is 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 absolutely key. Looking at some of the other adjuncts, and and this will kind of segue into Swift, maybe a little bit later in the conversation around freeze dried plasma and fresh frozen plasma. Could you maybe speak to the adage of? Of, of FDP, uh, freeze-dried plasma, as a surrogate of FFP, and indeed whether it's being given within the military context at the moment, and indeed whether you're an advocate for FDP. Yeah, so I think um, tranexamic acid, as we have talked about, is part of the answer. 
Um, it's part of a, a global suite of interventions that we can deliver as part of hemostatic resuscitation. Uh, and I think the delivery of early blood and blood products is an important component for that as well. Um, one of the issues uh, in civilian pre-hospital practice, as well as military pre-hospital practice, is the, the nuts and bolts of the delivery of blood products in the pre-hospital environment. And um, one way to, uh, uh, to make it easier is to carry freeze-dried plasma, lyophilized plasma, and reconstitute it at scene. It's, it's lighter. Um, it is slightly more complex to reconstitute um, FDP than giving just a bag of thawed frozen plasma. Uh, however, the, there's little difference in its effect as far as we know at the moment, and the scientific evidence would suggest there's little difference in its effect. Um, there was a systematic review published in the Journal of Trauma recently uh, by Mock et al. Um, and uh, they found that essentially there's no difference in outcomes from patients that are, are given freeze-dried plasma versus um, thawed frozen plasma. So if there's no difference in outcome, uh, we should probably give the thing that's logistically easiest to give uh, to facilitate giving it as early as possible in the operational patient care pathway. Um, is it given in current clinical practice? Uh, yes, we do use uh, freeze-dried plasma. Um, different units have different protocols, but uh, in the military context overall, yes, there are units out there carrying freeze-dried plasma or lyophilized plasma. Um, and it, it's a key component and a facilitator of enabling hemostatic resuscitation to be given out in the field um, bypassing some of the logistic constraints of um, the, the requirements of being light, uh, the requirements of um, not being tied to fridges and freezers uh, and um, large, heavy boxes and equipment. So, yeah, I, I think freeze-dried plasma may well be a, an appropriate part of the solution to affect hemostatic resuscitation early in the pre-hospital environment. So Jason, looking at the military context in relation to hyper, hypertensive resuscitation and, you know, sort of running the patient low, so to speak, but with quite dramatically extended uh, run times to definitive care or indeed a tertiary level facility where you've got surgical capability. What are you see, seeing on the ground from sort of hypertensive management? Are you sort of still advocating to sort of run the patient low? Or indeed, are, are you sort of more advocating more of a balancing act between blood products and and or maybe uh, more of a permissive hypertension uh, perspective? So it's a really good question, uh, and it's one that vexes us still in the year 2022. So we're now uh, almost 30 years since Bickle's paper took us by surprise when he described the management of penetrating trauma as essentially having an improved outcome when you kept patients hypotensive, you didn't give them lots of fluid, uh, and, and you got them to definitive surgical care as soon as possible. Uh, and that was in the mid-1990s. Um, we have been working in the background to try and produce some scientific evidence from this. And if you're interested in this topic, a really good uh, paper to look at. It's relatively old now, it's 10 years old. Um, but this came out of the team at DSDL Porton Down, was published in the Journal of Trauma in, in 2012. Uh, and the title of the paper is Targeted Resuscitation Improves Coagulation and Outcome. Uh, and this is where the concept of novel hybrid resuscitation uh, was described, which was essentially 
um, keeping patients low, not administering too much blood product, but then after an hour, titrating them to a relatively normal blood pressure. Um, so it, that's some animal evidence uh, that suggests that a novel hybrid approach um, may be practicing hypotensive resuscitation initially, uh, but then trying to normalize the blood pressure. Why are we doing this? Well, we know that the, um, the longer you keep someone hypotensive and hypoperfused, as everyone knows, we've talked in lots of different contexts about this, but it's not about pressure. It's actually about flow. It's about perfusion. If you're hypoperfusing and you're hypoperfusing for a long period of time, then you're at risk of adverse uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, coagulopathy, and all the other cascades that are set off by hypoperfusion. So in order to try and mitigate that, um, if you're in a pre-hospital environment, and, and one of the challenges that we faced in the military context over the last few years is this concept of having longer pre-hospital times, longer times to reach uh, definitive care, definitive um, resuscitation, definitive surgical management, is what do you do to patients? What do you do for patients who uh, you're having to hold in the pre-hospital environment for a prolonged time, two hours, three hours, four hours, uh, maybe longer at times. Um, and so we have put our heads together with uh, our American colleagues and our international colleagues. Um, some of you will have seen the Thor position paper uh, that came out in 2018 that essentially has suggested that um, prolonged hypotension is a bad thing for patients. And uh, whereas 20 years ago on the back of the Bickel paper, um, we were very firmly in the hypotensive resuscitation camp. I think now the realization is that if you keep people hypotensive for too long, uh, then you're potentially doing them a disservice in the medium and longer term as the effects of coagulopathy and SIRS take effect. Um, so what that Thor network position paper suggests is that we sh should be using um, uh, blood products as part of hemostatic resuscitation as early as possible. Um, potentially whole blood might be better than component therapy because it replaces all the different components of blood in one go uh, to try to prevent the, the onset of that coagulopathy and SIRS reaction that you get due to that prolonged hypotension. Um, so I think we are trying to play a balancing act at the moment. Uh, we're trying not to pop the clot, but I think probably the risk of popping the clot is less than the risk of harming the patient from prolonged hypotension. Uh, so um, I hope that goes some way to answer the question. I'm sorry, I can't give you an easy answer to that. No, absolutely. And, and like you said, it's a real balancing act and uh, probably positive evidence in, in the area, which, which will over time hopefully uh, give clarity. But um, Jason, just moving on to uh, preferred sort of um, pain management medication and just looking at um, your anecdotal and indeed empirical understanding of, of fentanyl lollipops and and how effective that they, they've been both with frontline management of pain and maybe indeed protective management of pain. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure many of you will know the history of uh, the use of intramuscular morphine auto-injectors in the military, um, which went on for uh, about 100 years uh, without any change. Um, and for what it was worth, it, it had some effect. Um, but uh, as you all know, that the administration of IM morphine 
to a hemodynamically compromised patient with multiple injuries who's bleeding uh, is not the ideal way to get pain relief into them. Um, we established that um, about 20 years ago and a development program to, to come up with a better solution was put in place. The fentanyl lozenges that you've talked about are one of those options um, and they are in use in UK military units at the moment. Um, what I would say is that when medical personnel attend, uh, so if you're um, self-administering or if you're administering to a body, then fentanyl lozenges are an, an appropriate way of getting pain relief into that patient. Um, but I think we can do better than that if there are medical personnel around suitably trained to administer intravenous uh, analgesia. Uh, and my own preference is um, to give appropriate analgesia. Uh, I think sometimes we underestimate people's pain. Certainly if I'm out there uh, uh, and I've got significant injuries, I'd like some um, very effective pain relief, please. Uh, and what do we know is effective? Well, we know opiates are effective when given intravenously. Um, so I, I have nothing against intravenous morphine as a first line agent to be given uh, for people in moderate to severe pain. But I also use ketamine. Uh, I'm a, an advocate of ketamine and I think it's uh, safe and relatively simple to use when used properly. So um, I'm sure there are people listening who use a combination of opiates and ketamine in their routine practice. Um, ketamine is something that I think has come in more and more over the last few years as we realise that it's very effective, it's safe, um, and it does the job for patients in uh, perhaps ways that um, uh, are of benefit to uh, the situation as well as the patient. So getting control of a situation both in the pre-hospital environment and in the resuscitation room um, often involves getting the patient pain controlled uh, and giving a combination of opiates and ketamine uh, potentially would do that. Jason, could we look at the SWIFT trial for a minute, if, if that's okay? So just we, we had the emergence and indeed the publication of the refill trial, which was looking at packed red blood cells and indeed um, freeze-dried plasma, um, such as lyoplas uh, versus standard care to the bleeding patient. Um, and interesting results, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, didn't, didn't show sort of benefit of outcome, but was fraught with difficulties around heterogeneous patient group. There was, you know, maybe a disparity of patients that would get with that, that, that entered the trial. So there's no uniformity of necessarily somewhere, some, some patients might have had blunt force injury from road traffic collisions versus penetrating injury. Could you maybe just speak to the SWIFT trial and how it maybe differentiates from the, from the refill trial? And indeed, if there is a standardization of primary outcome and primary patient population? Uh, all good questions. Um, so let's talk about the refill trial first. Um, I think the refill trial was uh, an excellent example of a, pre a complex pre-hospital study delivered in the UK pre-hospital environment. Uh, and it shows that we can deliver high quality evidence to try and answer some of the complex questions that, that we are facing at the moment. Um, what about the results of refill? Well, I think you need to understand the methodology of the refill trial to interpret the results correctly. 
Um, as you know, the refill trial was statistically powered to detect a 10% difference in primary outcome. And that primary outcome was a composite outcome of mortality, event mortality and lactate clearance. Um, I think a 10% difference was ambitious. If you look in detail at the, um, uh, the individual components from the refill trial, um, there was a mortality difference between the groups. It wasn't statistically significant because the trial was powered to detect a large difference uh, and there wasn't that large a difference in mortality. Uh, however, I don't think that's the end of the story. I think you need to look at the results of the refill trial as one piece of the puzzle. Um, we've got evidence from the United States as well, uh, the combat and pamper trials, which as I'm, I'm sure many people listening will be aware, showed conflicting results. But one thing that we found from a meta-analysis of the results of those trials was that potentially we need to look at pre-hospital times as uh, a significant element in patient selection. So there seemed to be benefit in blood products in the patients with longer pre-hospital times, which if you think about it, um, sort of makes sense. If you're just around the corner from a major trauma center in definitive surgical uh, treatment, well, um, it, it probably doesn't matter what you give that patient if you're 15 minutes around the corner, uh, as long as the patient is still alive. Um, however, if you're an hour and a half from the nearest major trauma center, then what you give as your resuscitation cocktail um, and how you practice that hemostatic resuscitation probably does matter. So I think there's um, a, there may be a difference between blunt and penetrating. Uh, I think there is a difference between pre-hospital timings um, is there a difference between blood components? Well, that's what the SWIFT trial is trying to figure out. So uh, we looked at practice across the UK and many air ambulances at the moment are delivering a combination of packed cells and plasma, either thawed frozen plasma or uh, freeze-dried plasma, lyophilized plasma, um, a, a, as a combination of packed cells and plasma. So that is probably standard care in uh, more than half of the air ambulances that we surveyed. Um, whole blood hasn't been available as a product. Um, NHSBT are the organisation that produced blood products um, in the UK. And whereas in 1940, 1950, we, we were giving whole blood as a, a blood product, a blood component uh, to bleeding trauma patients. Um, around that time, there was a shortage of supply and therefore um, whole blood started to be separated into its component parts which then became ingrained into practice to a degree that we sort of forgot that whole blood existed and over the last 20 years more and more evidence has come out that you get better outcomes if you try to replace all the components of whole blood and one of the things that refill showed potentially was um, that maybe it doesn't make a difference if you're if you have a short pre-hospital time around the corner from uh, a major trauma center because as soon as you get to that major trauma center we've now got systems in place whereby people get balanced resuscitation with blood products including packed cells plasma and platelets so if we're trying to replace packed cells plasma and platelets as soon as possible how about whole blood so the whole blood component development program at NHSBT has been ongoing for a few years now, and that component is ready to, um, to look at in a clinical trial. 
And that's what we're doing in SWIFT. So SWIFT is, a, as you mentioned at the start, a randomized controlled trial of whole blood versus standard care, which we've defined as a combination of packed cells and plasma um, in the pre-hospital environment given to patients who would normally receive a pre-hospital transfusion uh, in the opinion of the clinical teams. And what we've tried to do is interfere as little as possible in, in terms of normal protocols. Um, so patient selection is very simple. It's a patient who you would normally give a blood transfusion to. Uh, the teams who are taking part in the trial will have a very easy decision to make. They'll decide to give blood and then they'll decide to open the box. And the box will contain pre-randomized blood products. They'll either be two units of whole blood in there or there'll be two units of packed cells and two units of plasma. Um, and everything else according to, uh, it, it will be according to their normal protocols. Um, how much you would give to children would be according to their normal protocols. Um, what else you would do in addition, uh, whether you give TXA or not, again, would be all according to your normal protocols. Um, and then uh, we're gonna measure, we're gonna look at 24 hour mortality and the amount of blood products that patients receive in the first 24 hours as uh, our primary outcome measure. Um, and obviously we're gonna look at a load of other things like logistics, cost, uh, longer term outcome, patient satisfaction. Um, but we really want to know uh, those hard facts of, you know, do patients live or die more when you give whole blood versus component therapy? And hopefully, the SWIFT trial will, will answer that. I should say that um, there's been a slight delay in getting all the approvals in place and setting up the logistics of supply uh, to the air ambulances that are gonna be taking part. Uh, it's the 22nd of September today. I can confirm that all the regulatory approvals are now in place um, and we're hoping to launch this in the next few weeks. Uh, we're gonna be starting off with a few air ambulances and then rolling that out to the other air ambulances that are taking part. So if there are people listening thinking, we think we're doing SWIFT, but we haven't heard anything for a while. Apologies, there's been a delay, but hopefully we'll be up and running soon. Jason, that's fantastic. And um, I totally agree with you. A primary uh, outcome of 24 hours is, is almost a good analogue of, uh, of potentially predicted outcome over a longer duration, because I think that that, that first 24 hours is absolutely key for stabilization and indeed the trajectory of the bleeding patients. So um, I think it's a fantastic sort of primary outcome really to, to hopefully prognosticate a, a, a future, a future or indeed a longer term outcome for these, for these patients. And I'm really interesting to, to get um, a, 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 some empirical evidence around whole blood uh, versus versus standard care and it'd be really interesting just to touch base with you as the study progresses as you reach the the, the sample size that, that you hope to achieve to um to, to power the study and indeed uh, sort of get the get the evidence in as to whether it, it 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 is effective and indeed cost effective just leaves me to say thank you for your time jason i really do appreciate your time uh and indeed your perspectives over the over the past half an hour um if there were just any take-home messages for frontline clinicians or indeed frontline military that might be listening um around their immediate management of bleeding patients oh uh, yes i think um if I was going to give any message, it would be to try and keep it simple uh, and to try and follow the algorithms and advice that, that is out there. Um, it's there for a reason. It works. So the simple stuff done well. Um, 
if, if someone in, is hosing out, then stop them hosing out. Initiate hemostatic resuscitation as soon as possible and make sure the patient, if you're doing something painful or they've got a painful injury, is as comfortable as they possibly can be uh, and get them to a medical treatment facility as soon as you can for definitive care. And I think that there's reasonable evidence to support those simple things saving lives. Jason, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.